You know these Mac, these Mac Airs, you know, they love to reduce the ports that you have so that they yes. can sell you all of the extras. Um, oh, tell the me about dongles. The yeah. freaking dongles. The dongles, I, yeah. I just got, <laughs> I just ordered my new computer and I had to get this janky thing. Oh my God. What like is me, that? It's yeah. the, so it has the USB-C uh-huh. and then yeah. to everything else that you use. Right. Right. Otherwise, even just for even just for this little guy, yeah. which is yeah. a USB, I mean, that's like seventy five bucks. That's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's a bitch. Yeah. I but, just have a MacBook Pro, so I have all the ports that a boy could want. MacBook was that Pro from is, yeah. like what two thousand eighteen or something? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Like, they, you can still get them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. But, they're expensive, the pros. But I, I have really nice. Unless they're used. Special. Yeah, no, I had, a, I, had a he rolls. I had an old one that was great. Right. I didn't want to give up my MacBook Pro, but I, I, I kind of had to finally give up on the the superstitious things of, you know, closing the screen, opening the screen, turning around two times, you know, left that's to the right. left, and like hoping that it was not going to go back to blue screen, which it yeah, that's fair. That's which right. never seemed binary because sometimes it worked. But, uh, yeah. you know, nonetheless, I got I mean, they have personality as much they as have folks like to say that they, they sure don't. Do. <laughs> they sure do. They are living things in some sort of form. Uh, <laughs> like old man Juma says, everything's got dreaming. That's right. Oh, oh my gosh. So I don't know if you can catch that reference, Nigel, but you no, got to get in on that. Oh, my old gosh. So right. oh, do you have your copy? Handy? Oh, Me? I, yeah. I do, but it doesn't have a cover on it. So. Oh. <laughs> uh, there's so uh, oh, a, a buddy of ours is this guy uh-huh. Tyson Young Caporta, who is a Appalachian clan member in uh, Aboriginal Australia, as well as a PhD complexity researcher. Okay. And he wrote a book called well, Talk, which is fucking incredible. Um, yeah. Which is called How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. And it's basically as opposed to doing the thing that is so popular in academia where somebody like takes a Western lens and they sort of like slide an indigenous like viewpoint across it and then like write a bunch of things that are really still primarily Western orientation um, or from a Western orientation. He flips that and basically writes uh, a book about what indigenous thought as he understands it um, from his culture has to say about various kinds of complexity issues that are ongoing. Oh, oh. It's really uh, it's, it's really beautiful what? and sort of That's... one of the sand talk. And if you like audiobooks, it's a great yeah, audiobook yeah. because yeah. he reads it and he's he's a riot. Um, yeah, he's hilarious. Oh my gosh. Um, and guy. so he, you know, it's like listening to somebody tell a very complex and beautiful story. Um, yeah. Now I know what you're doing with your time, Lucas. <laughs> exactly. So old man Literally Juma is one of the characters. I mean, he's you know. He's a, he's a real character, but one of the characters in the book who is uh-huh. kind of took Tyson under his wing at a certain point and dropped all this deep wisdom on him. And one of the things that he says, which Tyson finds a little bit hard to swallow, is that once something comes into being in the world, say uh, a computer or a flashlight, that not long after that, it like once it actually lands and becomes integrated in the world, it has dreaming. Right. So it has this aspect of, you know, there's a what dreaming is is a whole other longer conversation. But, you know, I think you kind of at least get some gist of it where, Mm -hmm. you know, there isn't anything that is here that doesn't quickly become part of all of it. So, computers having personalities like pretty much that works. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. good. Yeah. Dogen talks a lot about that, too. Mm -hmm. 
in the Shobogenzo, yeah. It's in the, from the Buddhist perspective, that's, yeah. that's also another, yeah. The being here now includes all, you know, animate and inanimate things that right. that once they come into being, like that's they're, they're, there's this web, basically. Yeah. It kind of intrinsically connects everything. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I wonder, is that part of the yokai world as well that they have? I forget what it's called. Um, there's um, the belief that... Are we that's doing the podcast now, by the way? Yeah, is I just... This, this, this is how yeah, we roll. Okay, that's okay. That's how we roll. If you like introductions, we can do one, but no, no, we often don't do, do those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. We just no, no, drop I, into I, a conversation. I, kind of, I get Lucas, so I, I figured we'd yeah. already started. Exactly. So there's a... The reason why they... Um, burn a lot of things that they don't use at the end of the years because they believe that once you let, leave something fallow for a while or once it sort of, you know, is in your sphere a little bit too long and it doesn't, you sort of don't, uh, you're not using it. You're not engaged um, with it. Yeah. You're not engaged with it. Then it starts to come alive and and, and um, uh, has a, a pernicious kind Menacing of... potential. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Like yeah, TV. it does. Yeah. yeah. So they'll so they burn a lot of things at the end of the year. I wonder yeah. if it it's a I wonder if that's kind of tied into that Buddhist thing. I always thought of it as a more of a Shinto kind of thing, but I wonder. I if think it's more Shinto. Yeah, I mm. think you're right. Yeah, that's like, uh, but yeah, that engagement right. with and and use of you know whatever object or relationship you have that's 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 what qualifies its beingness in a sense. So yeah, mm-hmm. if you if you kind of leave things, I guess it's like anything. It's like. It's like the chi of food, right? Like if you, you know, you know, a couple of days later, that Chinese takeaway is not really, you know, I don't know. I don't know how much chi is really in there anymore. It's like, <laughs> I don't know how much chi was in there even when it was fresh. But like, Yeah, that's, that's the question, right? Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's an interesting one about, yeah. uh, about the aliveness, the intrinsic aliveness of chi itself. I don't know. I, it, could it be that it has a has any you know, living qualities to it, except for an other than in its relationship to inhabiting things, you know, like, or, you know, in, in, you know, in, enlivening things, literally. I mean, that's how I understand she doesn't, it's not like an object, you know, um, so. That's so fascinating because we just had this conversation when we were being interviewed for a podcast. <clears throat> yeah. They asked the gentleman, uh, Layman uh, Pascal, Pascal was asking us, uh, know. you know, yeah. what we think about chi. What is our, you know, vantage point on chi? <clears throat> and because, you know, and we, we got into this a little bit. Um, I think our perspective now is that it's um, basically the fab- the fabric of space-time, mm-hmm. essentially. And so, yeah, it, 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 it's very similar to that idea that it, that inherently can't have... Um, I mean, it takes on qualities as uh, in the different contexts, I guess. You know, it's not, it doesn't in, inherently have a um, an agenda per se. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's not, um, I guess it's kind of like, in some ways it's similar to the idea that Ed talks about with Shen, where it's like, you know, it's sort of the filter which the light shines through. Mm-hmm. You know, so what the projection of, um, you know, if it's a red filter, it's something will look red. If it's a green filter, it'll look green. Or if it's a spring filter, it'll look like spring. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In the, you know, it, if it's 
um, on the terrestrial plane, and it's in the um, in the eastern direction. It's wind, you know, things uh-huh. like that. Uh-huh. So, <clears throat> yeah, it was it just. Um, I mean, Lucas, one of the things that that I I'm hearing in what you're saying that maybe would help Nigel to orient to that point of view is that, um, you know, so often in Chinese medicine, we have a term and then we have like all of these different, this web, as we were talking about a minute ago with beingness of these different kinds of orientations and definitions, relationships that is largely based on context. Uh One of the interesting things about working with Ed is he's often looking for like what he feels like the Neijing and especially the Suan is expressing as the primary or root definition. So in the case of Qi, right, his orientation to that is this notion of um, the that upon which the movement of yin and yang is expressed through mm-hmm. or so that's where the space-time like the fabric of space-time mm-hmm. is like fundamentally we have this movement of yin and yang and then how do we perceive that or how how does that come into being in the universe it comes into being through chi this kind of boundary space between those things and then depending on again if you're in the cosmos or on the earth and what aspect of the earth you're on because of those other contextual relational aspects, it starts to look or be able to be perceived as different phenomenon. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so if you have the notes, right, that are playing from the cosmos, then we're going to get as that comes down to earth. That was kind of what Lucas was referring to for these different seasonal aspects right and then how that interfaces with these other manifestations that are coming up from the earth starts to get into the luci or what have you Uh um just seemed like maybe a a tiny bit of the theory that orients that Mm -hmm. particular point of view might have helped help it hang together a little bit better conceptually Mm -hmm. um i don't know if that helps nigel but yeah no no that's that's clear i mean i think um the term conceptually is is key in a sense for for, for any of these concepts because, um, you know, to bring something into being, there has to, it has to be seen or perceived or experienced or conceived of at least. You know, this is the Schrodinger's cat experiment, right? I mean, that's classic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that cat dead or alive? Well, we, you know, until you see it, you could hypothesize about a lot of things. And mm-hmm. you know, in Chinese medicine, we have a tendency to sometimes, you know, waffle on <laughs> into the mm. ether. Um, and that's okay. You know, that's good too, because uh, that's one of the brilliant things about the philosophical underpinnings of what we do is that there is endless philosophy to be engaged in. But when it comes to real things in the world, like matter, um, uh, matter of fact, if you like to say, um, of course, that has to sort of get a bit more grounded. So yeah, then you have to have context. And that really comes through the perception of the speaker, really. Um, so in that sense, she is very personal, I guess. I mean, I don't see it any other way. It couldn't be a mm. – I know we talk a lot about universality and universal principles, but in some ways, she is, is highly personal. Um, or one's experience of it is highly personal. I don't know how else to put that. Mm. Um, although that doesn't mean, of course, uh, and we assume that it, there is a connection always with something outside of ourselves that has to be more – um, universal and intrinsic. So, yeah, that's the interesting thing about Qi. Um, but, yeah, then, then the second point you were making, I think, was 
the whole contextualization or the the passing out of expressions of like something like a like chi. Then once you give a context, then you can talk about the chi of X Y Z, and that's yeah. that's useful in discussions, and it's useful for us in in medicine because it allows us to, you know, focus in on you know the chi of this organ or the chi of that person, or you know, so to give it context. But to assume that when we're doing that, it's completely separate from or somehow different from the whole concept of chi is it would be probably foolish. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, the three treasures is probably the best simple epitome of you know that interaction of matter and spirit i guess um which in its expression then is is chi or, or man or person or living things or life i guess um i always remember claude lauren elizabeth thrush's books early books in the 80s you know you probably, i'm sure you've read them um Claude Lyre, I met a few times. He's a really interesting character. I sadly passed on quite a few years ago, but he was uh, not a Chinese medicine practitioner. He was um, uh, a sinologist and uh, spoke and wrote, wrote, wrote and read classical Chinese and was a very funny guy, actually. He was a, a priest. He was a, I forget his, his the order. I think it might have been Benedictine monk or one of the monk orders from France. Anyway, he somehow or other hooked up with Elizabeth Rocha, who's, as you know, still alive, very much alive and teaching. Um, and back in the 80s uh, and 90s, they wrote a series of texts on the organs that were based on the Neijing um, and, and actually did some line-for-line translations. And I like the fact that they used uh, the translation for chi of breath. They always, systematically, they used breath, actually, which... At the, t- at the time, sort of jangled a little bit for me, but I, then as I got used to it, I thought, well, that's actually, that's pretty good. I, I kind of like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the breath of heaven, the breath of the kidneys, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was an interesting translation. Yeah. Yeah. Is, are you guys, in your study, do you, you, do you literally do line-by-line kind of translation? Is that how you approach it? Like in Not the, us. The old, school, the old school style? <laughs> no. It's... It- it's sure. a subset of what happens, right? So yeah. there's whatever yeah. the kind of like lecture, which will have sections that have been translated line by line, character by character, but then there's a reading section um, oh, okay. that's yeah. kind of a, a corollary, right? Yeah, okay. And that's going through line by line. And um, that's from him? That's his commentary? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it is. And then in this cohort, there are a lot of people that have a background in translation to some degree. Yeah. So there's a group of those folks that are also translating that same weekly section Mm -hmm. and kind of giving it a go and then they're in discussion as i was mentioning prior to the recording part of the conversation i am not amongst those people that do that (laughs) but that is very active amongst Uh a large group of folks taking the class yeah that that's a whole not i mean since we're kind of spinning off into various different topics that's a whole nother issue isn't it translation Mm -hmm. it's uh Mm -hmm. such an i've always found it such an interest i mean i took a position years ago of being the um, the uh, the un- unscholarly position, actually, I, I just first of all, I don't read classical Chinese. That's the first thing, and I decided a long time ago that I wasn't going to try. <laughs> um, so that, of course, is a limitation, but at least acknowledged overtly. Uh, my Japanese is sort of reasonable. Um, I struggled through some texts, okay, um, but uh, yeah. So She's so that was a limitation. Translate, <laughs> but that was that was a limitation. Um, so in a sense, what I'm about to say could probably just be a justification, but nonetheless, I sort of did come to a feeling, actually Bensky and I had to talk about this and he was quite, quite interesting. He interested me a lot because he, 
I was surprised uh, by his interpretation of, and uh, he was very much not of the school of, you know, literal translation. Um, and I think he was relatively friendly with Nigel Wiseman, for example. I'm sure they have the same sort of ilk. But he actually didn't appreciate the attempt to nail down terminology. Um, Bensky himself, at least at that time, he, he said to me, you know, the whole point of translation is that you have some sort of expression of what you believe is the core meaning. And that could take many forms in language uh, when you're moving into a second language. So I've, um, yeah, translation is a sticky issue. I mm-hmm. think, what, you know, I totally relate to the idea of trying to get to that core of, of meaning. But I, I also think in a sense, um, it's almost like a, there's a double impossibility of doing that with ancient Chinese, right? Not, not only that it's another language, but it's another ancient language that even the modern Chinese don't really, you know, I mean, the mm-hmm. con- conceptually don't relate to. So um, I certainly found that in Japan was also true. You know, even even medieval Chinese, Japanese, like even Edo period Japanese is not related to by modern Japanese. They don't, mm-hmm. conceptually, there's a lot of issues that they, it's like, whoa, what does that mean? You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, if I gave uh, Fuxiu Kiran, for example, Inaba's text from 1800, not that long mm-hmm. ago, if the original text my Japanese girlfriend cannot read that text, but, you know. So that's, that, I mean, she can, she can, she can read it, but it doesn't make any much sense to her. Mm-hmm. And some of the concepts, and even some of the use of language, is just, you know, oh, we don't. What is? Oh, I think I can. I think I know what he's saying, but that's weird. You know, <laughs> it's like the, the grammatical structure, but also the. Um... the the characters that they use themselves. Right? Everything about the language, the, the ground structure, the actual the actual kanji that are selected, uh, the form of the kanji in some cases. Although oh. in Japanese, as we know, they they didn't they didn't simplify the system, but nonetheless, some of the characters, like even the character for uh, for Sho for Zheng, right, is has two characters. Um, in it, there's an older character, and so you know whether that which one gets used. There's some nuances as to the translation there. Mm. Um, and as you know, in Japanese, it's an added difficulty because they have the onyomi and kunyomi. That they have different pronunciations for the same character. So that starts to get a little, you know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But that's, not, that's a Japanese issue. <clears throat> Luckily, the Chinese, Chinese have their troubles with the, with the tones, right? But they don't have mm-hmm. the issue with the different, different uh, rendering of the same character. No, that's... Um, my that's friend who's, who speaks pretty good Chinese, he, said, uh-huh. he, he described Japanese as Chinese with grammar. <laughs> well yes there's a lot of rules about yes it's true. there's a lot of rules, yeah. rules yeah. Yeah. yeah remind me i have a program that you might be interested in that um a language program for japanese mm-hmm. it's a little rudimentary for you but um the way that they introduce like learn learning how to read is really interesting so yes file that away we'll yeah i mean but it's, it is fascinating japanese i mean we don't want to get off, off the topic but japanese is it's like like Fuku, right? For example, the character mm-hmm. for Fubu in, in Pinyin, like the abdomen, mm-hmm. um, in Japanese can be pronounced in two ways. So mm-hmm. it's the, the pronunciation can be hara, the same character. Oh, right. But of course, the meaning of hara and the meaning of fuku are very different. I mean, one's very physical and anatomical, and one is very, um, very much not. You know, hara is much more, hara can be heart, hara can be mind, it can be spirit, it can be, right? But that's the same character. Um, or you'll have the same pronunciation with different characters. That's the, <laughs> that's the other way of doing it. Like uh, you have uh, ho, which is um, uh, fang zheng, right? So the classical, 
concept in in the Shahanlan anyway of matching formulas and treat, uh, formula treatment with diagnosis basically fangjiang the character fang is a uh, ho in japanese um and that's that that ho which basically in the end translates as treatment essentially or method um can also be can also be the same sound can also be written as the character as uh, of uh, kata which is a martial art kata like the form right yeah so that they have the same sound in japanese so you have this kind of weird kind of some some sounds have two different characters some single characters have two different sounds that's uh, that's where japanese starts to get a little crazy yeah. it's interesting endlessly <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um so yeah, is the thing that guides you to one or the other primarily contextual like context. it is in some okay yeah completely contextual yeah yeah, yeah. and that's quite hard to get actually I, I mean that's why my japanese was never going to be and and that's where um i mean i i, I was friends at the time with a couple of Jap, uh, uh, close friends of mine who one was married to a japanese one had lived in japan for a long time even someone like stephen brown who you know, grew up in japan they they still have it's hard it's <laughs> they never really quite get to those nuances of like you need you'd need to well Stephen probably did because he was born in Japan and he lived in Japan until he was probably 20 mm. so he probably actually just went through the whole system and it became you know, part of his bones i suppose i don't know if he spoke english back at home because his parents were missionaries at the time so they 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 probably spoke english at home but but certainly uh, i'm thinking of this australian friend of mine who was involved with the embassy he'd married a japanese he'd been in japan like 20 years before i got there his japanese to my ear was just like flawless but the number of times uh, i was in situations with him where you know <laughs> japanese would look at him mostly it was visual cuz you know you, you, if you look like a foreigner then you couldn't speak japanese right so <laughs> they'll try their pidgin english and uh, he'll like he responds in fluent japanese but they continue in their you know this is kind of a mental block there you know the classic would be the supermarket you know check out right where the little young young girl usually is probably looking down and then they're having a conversation in fluent japanese and then she'll look up and there'll be this like <laughs> moment and then she start ah this up this I want this item no uh, i'm not sure how much she you know whatever yeah, <laughs> couldn't 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 The fact that they've just been having this fluent conversation. No, oh, no, no, that's that's that must have been someone else. <laughs> yeah. Um anyway. It's like the inverse of context giving something meaning. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> yeah. But nonetheless, you got to love them the Japanese. They are absolutely perfectionists in many ways. Um and thankfully you're transitioning. Now that's that's the one, I think that's the, the the spirit of Japan that I that I I came to know and love the most was amidst all that tradition and annoying aspects of some some annoying aspects of their culture that I found annoying anyway. Um I think intrinsically especially in the 20th century they they have gone they have managed transition pretty well. They they they're pretty they live they walk the talk actually. They walk the walk they talk the talk in a sense with their Buddhist and Shinto backgrounds. Um which is to say you know they can go through transitions which could have floored some countries uh notably the second world war for example and yet they can emerge and and transition and change and 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 really change not just superficial change i think um 
you know, that whole imperial craziness of the mid 20th century um, was just finally kind of thrown out by most Japanese because they realized it didn't work. They, they're very pragmatic like that. So, yeah, I do admire that, uh, you know, essentially Taoist idea, right? The go with the flow thing. They're very good at that, the Japanese, you know, in a, in a kind of, although if I was a woman, I'd never live in Japan. <laughs> That's for sure. Too many expectations. <laughs> Too many expectations. So I have a question I've been kind of dying to ask you as, as soon as I heard this um, this concept uh, thrown my way, which is um, the idea that herbs can't truly break up or liberate cold within tissue. I know we're totally changing tax here, but mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I've heard it postulated that because it's a, a freezing of tissue mm-hmm. or sequestering of a physical cold within tissue, that it's and possibly this is an aging perspective, maybe not, um, meaning that like it's an interpretation, mm-hmm. but that um, herbs just don't have that ability to, to liberate it from tissue. That you need you need a physical. Um, intervention that changes the tissue matrix that allows the cold to then through the needle or just out of the tissue in general. Mm. What do you, what do you make of that idea being the Campo extraordinaire? That's pretty interesting. Uh, yeah. more I don't surface. know how I feel. You're talking more at the surface of the body then, presumably. Uh, no, not surface? really. Yeah, it could no, be all the way down to bone level, really. But part of the frame though, is that somehow the sequestration <clears throat> is outside of the the my vessel, like mm-hmm. the ages oh, sure. of the my vessels, right? So yeah, sure. when yeah. we look at the sort of the anatomical orientation from the Ling Shu, right? And we look at more of a vascular perspective mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. channel pathway, that that is, this this understanding is predicated on that being the orientation to the understanding of channel dynamics. And so that somehow this thing, like you wouldn't also within this frame be able to find this through pulse taking because it would be somehow outside of where you would be able to perceive those kinds of influences Mm. in the system. Hence, if all of those things are the context that the way to deal with that, then even if it's deep is still to create a pathway where it can move from this kind of like bound Mm. area of latent sequestration out through the exterior. Um, yeah, that's a lot in that package. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, sorry, I totally dropped a bomb. But well, no, the, yeah, the first thing that strikes me about that is, um, Taryn, when you're talking about the pulse, actually, that's very interesting because I do, I can talk to that first um, because as an acupuncturist, obviously uh, myself, I'm I'm using the pulse a lot. Um, but I got to say that. Uh, the use of the pulse, certainly in the Shanghai Lun, as, as you guys know, is, is pretty different and actually not well understood, I think, by, mm. by many of us. Um, and Li Shijun's work, of course, is sort of so dominant in, in, modern, in modern Chinese thinking and, and for good reason. But it's very different, actually, in, in some concepts. And since it is the Shanghai Lun, then there is some, quite some focus on the nature of cold and its effect on the pulse, for example. Um, 
you know, the wiry pulse, uh, for example, in the Shanghai Lun is not considered an excess pulse. It's considered a, uh, uh, the chi the is actually beginning to wane a little bit mm -hmm. uh, because the pathogenic entity has been around for a while. So the body's defense is actually weakening. Um, or another good example would be the deep, the deep and constrained or hidden pulse is often a pulse of heat, actually. Um, yeah, a Yang Ming pulse. Um, so anyway, there are examples like that. But what I was going to say in response to part of what Taran was saying is, yeah, there are many times in blood patterns, uh, and that includes cold in the blood and stasis issues. Um, and not only blood, but also the, the, the yin substances in terms of fluids. So really the yin aspects, um, which I would consider more the domain of herbs in, to begin with, in a sense, uh, although that's a bit of a gross generalization. But, you know, maybe some of, part of that could be have some meaning. Uh, but, you know, feeling the pulse uh, when, as you say, Taryn, if there's, let's say you have some extravasation of blood or some stagnation of blood due to cold in the tissues surrounding the, the my and the vessels and so on. Um, so not, you know, oftentimes it doesn't register on the pulse. For example, Jugan uh, Satan, let's take that simple formula. Um, conceptually, anybody who knows that formula knows that very likely, in theory, you might have a pulse change that would register something like a, either some irregularity on the pulse or some knotted quality that reflects or that should reflect blood stasis. My experience is that that's extremely un uncommon. Mm -hmm, <laughs> but mm -hmm. I, I don't. I don't find a pulse like that necessary. In fact, I don't really even bother too much with the pulse. If I'm, if my mind is set on that formula with a particular patient, and the evidence mostly would come from the abdomen and the detailed questioning of signs and symptoms, I'm not that worried about the pulse because. I mean, if it happens to be choppy or irregular or, or rough or something, oh, great. You know, right, exactly. that's so I'm wondering whether that's partly what you're referring to, Taryn, that, that who knows? I mean, I think that blood stasis as a concept, for example, could include retardation of flow within the vessels. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We know mm -hmm. that. And and people like I, I mean, I shouldn't really talk about her because I've never studied with her, but Matsumoto Kiko, for example, she. I know has various protocols that she works with where mm -hmm. she claims to, you know, release static issues in the moment with needles, which I think could be totally possible because of that concept or because of that reality maybe of the some flow issue or as she talks about the, the hepatic portal vein and return and all that kind of stuff being retarded and the liver function and so on. That makes sense to me. But in herbs, generally, when we talk about blood stasis, for example, or cold stasis, we are talking about stasis outside of the vessels. Um, mm. And so the second part of what you're saying, I know that that's perhaps interesting to me, Lucas, because I would have thought, um, and I, I think, that actually that is in some ways one of the things that herbs is really good at, um, is, is actually getting in through the vessel system, through the blood system. Mm -hmm. It's not through mm -hmm. the channel mm -hmm. system. It's through because. Frankly, in my opinion, the whole idea of, of herbs entering the channels is mm -hmm. completely bogus. It's like total nonsense. Mm -hmm. um, it, it came up in the 11th century, and from then on, they uh, some fant fantastical ideas about that. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't, I don't know what – I mean, how would a, a herb enter a channel? I, I, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, that begs the question, what is a channel? What is channel? Right. It's, it's a big concept, but right. at least in the way I practically work, I never think that way. And uh, how do you visualize but, that then? Herbs are ingested and they enter mm-hmm. your bloodstream. I mean, that's we know they do. I mean, mm-hmm. come on. <laughs> in terms sure. of Western thinking, that, that's basically what happens. Right. Now, having said that, they, they can, I mean, the chemistry of herbs is, is like, like a piece of food that you in, ingest. It ends up or can end up in pretty much every cell of your body. So to mm-hmm. that extent, you could, you could claim that, you know, whatever the channels are, whether they're, you know, cell-to-cell communicators or whether it's these pathways, which we know are not anatomically structured, but that they, they have ways of movement, um, maybe, maybe the herbs do in that sense uh, are conducted through sort of channel-like structures. But to me, it's mostly the blood system uh, mm-hmm. where the herbs first end up in. And from that point of view, if you think about, let's say, uh, let's say cold in the surface of the body and some of the rheumatological formulas, for example, um, which often are based on Guizha, actually, mm-hmm. and at least in, in Shanghai thinking. Um, so there's all kinds of, whether it be uh, Guizha tongue, as simple as Guizha tongue itself, or more likely something like Guizha Jafuza tongue or Guizha Jafuju. Uh, food, ju, that one, yes. Yeah, <laughs> with, yeah. Bai, with bai, ju, anyway. Uh, in addition to fuzu. Um These kinds of, uh, you know, micro, because you know, from the, the Western language of some of the Japanese interpretations of the individual herbs, because as you know, I think in Japan, that, that historically it's been very interesting, um, the, uh, the legacy of traditional material uh, inside Japan in, in the Kampo realm has been sort of divided into two camps. One is, um, I think, in the early 20th century when they were uh, busy reconstructing the whole medical system in Japan and basically trying to outlaw acupuncture, which thankfully didn't happen, um, and basically trying to kind of come to terms with herbal medicine in terms of biochemistry only, uh, they quickly understood and I, a kudos to them. They quickly understood those early scientists in the 20th century that you can't really study a formula. It's too fucking complicated. Yeah. <laughs> it's really difficult. Uh, but you can study a herb, a single herb. Mm-hmm. So what happened in Japan and has, has continued to this day, which is neither good nor bad, it's just interesting, is that the literature that physicians and pharmacists study, or funny people like me who might go out there and study, we... we you study the classical material for the formulas. So that includes, you know, original material, Han Dynasty material, but also commentaries and Japanese sources as well on the formulations and case studies, of course. That's, uh, you know, which is very classical sort of study, you know, style. When it comes to the individual herbs, no, no, no. They, they study pharmacology and they study mm. the pharmacology of the individual herbs. So for, I'm, I'm only making that point for example, if you were to you look at some of the literature on Guedza as a single herb, they talk a lot about its effect on microcirculation and its effect on the small vessels, particularly in the capillary bed, and its ability to actually literally kind of expand the capillaries and, and, and effuse the blood to, towards the surface, which shouldn't surprise us from our classical language kind of know that. So I would claim in that example, for example, that, you know, Guedza-based formulas are very efficient at actually, you know, increasing vasculation to tissues that may, as you say, be kind of condensed or compacted by this, the effect of cold, the damage that cold has left, and to revasculate. Or if you think about 
something a little bit deeper, but not yet fully internal, like the so-called Zhuiyin core patterns uh, formulas, like Dangui Suni Tang, Dangui Suni Jiawuju, Shenjiang Tang. Those are used in Japan, for example. They're used very commonly for a vascular damage, like uh, like um, like frostbite. Uh, mm-hmm. And there is there is the claim if the tissue is not completely necrotic, there is some potential for regenerating new tissue um, and through vasculation actually. Uh, and of course, those formulas are based also on guizhi, but they also have dengue. They also have uh, shishin and some other you know quite warming ability. They don't contain foodza, interestingly, because mm-hmm. they're more they're more going towards the surface and the channel, the channel based hierarchy of jueyin. Uh, Versus, of course, the Shaoyin, where, of course, you know, then you go in with a, with a totally different uh, approach. Because instead of going inside the blood and giving uh, stimulants that actually, or movers, we call them, invigorators, that actually invigorate the flow of the blood itself and try to expand the vessels and, you know, increase circulation. Uh, in the Shaoyin, um, we have to give Yang tonics. You know, we have to go for mm. the, whole, the whole body metabolism. That's gonna. We're gonna kickstart the whole body's ability to sort of make things happen, which is more on the chi mm-hmm. side, actually, less on the blood side. So, mm-hmm. you know, then we see foods. Uh, then we see all those water herbs and stuff. So, so, remove the water stagnancy, invigorate the yang is the is the approach there, um, and that's a different approach to treating cold and in the deep interior. Um, chasing out cold there would be literally increase the metabolic rate, and remove water stagnancy, cold water stagnancy. Yeah. Like Chemu Tang or Suni Tang or all those, you know, bunch of herbs like that. But I don't know if I'm getting to that question at all. But absolutely, I, I think you know, I, I I see herbs as extremely efficient actually at um, yeah. at uh, chasing out cold, um, both in the deep interior, but also at the surface of the body. In fact, I've, uh, I mean, in in surface patterns. I mean, let's take arthritis for example. Um, I've I mean, obviously, I'll see patients with acupuncture, and I use a lot of moxibustion, and definitely, as goes without saying, there's a lot of you know, positive effects with, with if you do things right. Um, but I've also noticed that in some, you know, cr- deep entrenched cases of cold, for example, cold in the spine, like a history of uh, Lucas. I don't know if you remember this case. It came up in Tri-State when you were when we were together. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I brought it up because it was um, actually a tri-state, a young tri-state teacher. She had been a tri-state. Oh, yeah. Do you remember this case with the back mm-hmm. pain? Mm-hmm. That was really quite fascinating to me because she was a very robust, you know, strong individual physically um, and didn't look in any way like a classic Yang deficient, you know, type. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her, her extremely, extremely debilitating, painful periods, which was her main complaint, every month, every month, um, didn't seem in any way, or in my concept, couldn't be, or couldn't be related to some deficiency pattern. She, she was, you know, and in fact, you know, her acupuncturists and um, the people at this college, and you know, she'd had, she had, she'd had umpteen treatments, all of which had helped to some degree in the realm of, you know, liver chi stagnation issues and moving the chi, moving, 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 but it always came back. And every month, maybe sort of diminished, but it was always there. And this is like a history of, she was, I think, in her late 30s then, and she had it since her teens. So we're talking like almost 20 years of horrible pains. Being a strong person, she sort of didn't complain much and she sort of put up with it. But, I mean, clearly it was debilitating. You know, she'd be lying down for a couple of days a month, you know, that kind of thing. And do you remember the, the history that we finally got to? Because um, 
Was it Dangui Sinitang? What was the? Yeah, we got to Dangui Sinitang. Yes, um, but in the history, something came out because the thing was, and this is what the students remarked on, is they could see the blood stasis, literally see it, like on her tongue. They could palpate it in the abdomen. I don't remember her pulse to be honest, but certainly the tongue and the abdomen demonstrate a lot of blood static issues. She was pretty strong. You know, most of the students were like, oh, she needs things like, um, you know, Tao Chenjitang or some kind of big, you know, cracking. She was not constipated, though, by the way. Uh, And she didn't have heat. That's the thing. But she also didn't have real uh, obvious surface cold signs. For example, if you asked Mm -hmm. her, did she feel cold? No. Did she have cold hands and feet to the touch? No. Did she feel sluggish? No. If she was in a cold environment, did the pain get worse? No. Was it worse in winter? No. (laughs) <laughs> so it was a complicated case and yeah i was like i remember a bensky uh, case that i'd read some years ago about this chronic back pain patient of his that he tried all sorts of different things including his specialties which are you know he's very into visceral manipulation and all that stuff and he'd done a lot of different stuff anyway he'd had similar kind of temporary effects but n- not fully recovery and he postulated in the end that this whole concept of Shangan concept of cold entering and lodging, that maybe this patient had something literally in the spine or deep to the spine that the needles were not getting to, that the moxa wasn't fully, you know, mm-hmm. that even the herbs that he was trying. And he just said to himself, well, I'm going to give a Fuzza formula. That's it. Uh, even though, again, when that is his case, and that's why I remembered it, was similar to this woman, quite strong, quite robust, not yang chi deficient, not cold by nature. You know, he gave that patient fuzutang, which is, you know, basically a, a Shaolin formula for, for, for the back directly. Um, and he did really well. Anyway, that was that case. So we gave her, I gave her Dangwei Suni Tang. She did really well. And I also gave her fuzutang as well later. And so oh, she really? did really well with these, you know, Jueyin and Shaolin cold pattern formulas, even though a lot of her presentation did not look like that at all which was pretty interesting. Um, but the piece of information I was going to get to was, if you remember, I think Taryn was wondering, <laughs> as like in her history, because I was very curious to, and thinking to myself, okay, so if, I, if we're right about this, where did the cold come from? Like, that's the question. Like, how, you know, if she doesn't look cold and she doesn't manifest cold now, but if, if we're right that that is cold interiorly, um, then it, it came from somewhere. You know, so we started to ask questions. And do you remember this? This is she was the lifeguard. She was, she was a lifeguard when she was fourteen because she's like this strong swimmer, you know. And every summer on the North Shore of Long Island, she would spend hours a day in the water all summer. And you know, it's not freezing cold. It's not like San Francisco cold, but it's cold water. Um, and until about August and September, you know, you get mm-hmm. a while. It doesn't really get that warm. So. I could only assume that these teenage years, somehow or other, her body, although it was strong, and because it was strong, she sort of didn't really, you know, react in other ways, but somehow or other, this cold kind of lodged on the interior and really adversely affected her period cycle. So, I, And I only came to that conclusion because she responded so well, obviously, practically to those formulas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that's an illustrative case, but... Uh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's yeah. perfect. Yeah. Well, it makes, it makes a lot of sense to me um, because I mean, it comes down to like a, a patient asked me this question is, is 
which is um does it matter what kind of foods we eat in terms of like in our ability to you know um you know cause stagnation or relieve stagnation and to me food is just you know um a daily nutritive herb in a mm-hmm. sense you know herbs the only distinction between herbs and food is is dosage really i mean and obviously like there's more you know very potent uh herbs but if you give them you know very very small amount then it's basically the nature of food and so you know i my my answer was absolutely because you know how else do we build tissue how else do we mm. like, cause malady you know like help diabetes you know the whole <laughs> um but it makes a lot of sense to me because if we look at herbs um in their properties of you know being through the flavors bitter sour mm-hmm. sweet bland salty um that's their that's an expression of their directionality you know so as these herb you know as the plant is coming into fruition um through the um you know the directional forces affecting them and then you know they come into being you know they have a certain quality and that certain quality um that certain flavor has a, an action mm. uh, moving up and out downward draining breaking up stagnation whatever and so just like you know any other foodstuffs or the way that we um metabolize emotional interactions the way that we you know our tissues um start to reorient because of habitual patterns like all these things affect tissue you know, adversely and and positively so how could it not you know so if you take if you have um you know uh, some stagnation you just maybe cystic stagnations in your lower abdomen you take you eat a lot of seaweed you know that should mm-hmm. theoretically help it's going to be salty and it's going to break up all those yes. things it's like that's a liberation of tissue so to me it, i don't i don't i don't it doesn't quite track you know mm-hmm. one of the things that i would offer to uh the idea that only one thing can address another thing mm. is that <clears throat> i think that what ha- what happens epistemically when we do that is we're conflating capacity and skill with outcome oh yeah and so sure. like i as a non-herbalist <clears throat> certainly could not treat cold with herbs um and it may even be that in terms of these kinds of cases right like maybe nigel and dan are the two people out of a hundred that would perceive that particular pattern. And if those other 98 are all seemingly really competent, but they can't get uh, the intervention to be effective, it's easy to have an impression that this thing doesn't work. Because in the main, you know, most of us are moderate or mediocre at what we do, even if we seem to be pretty good at it. And we won't have the level of insight to be able to actually um, come in and facilitate the change. So mm-hmm. I wonder whether or not what we're talking about is a little bit of conflation with 
correlation and causation. It's like generally my observation is that this doesn't seem to get at this level. That seems totally reasonable. It doesn't necessarily then follow that this entire orientation to working can't address this because Mm. one of the things that I say a lot to folks that come in as skeptics, often with skeptics that have a chip on their shoulder when they're like, well, I don't believe in Chinese medicine. And I will jokingly, but in sincerity, say Chinese medicine doesn't actually care whether you believe it in or not. (laughs) You know, or the corollary to that, like, like, can Chinese medicine treat this? I'm like, Chinese medicine can treat anything. Whether or not I have the skill as a clinician to successfully Mm -hmm, address mm -hmm. what's going on is a different question whether than Chinese medicine can treat it, Mm -hmm. right? I have confidence that the medicine can resolve things that are resolvable. And more things are resolvable typically than we think, right? But, Mm -hmm. you know, I can only do what I can do at this particular level in my development of my clinical understanding and skill. And so I, I think that, you know, we have a bunch of things going on at once, which my my interpretation of that is that they're a little bit interwoven in a way that i think is maybe maybe not exactly how they hang together when we start to take them up take them apart and and look at them like you were talking about you know you can't study a formula scientifically you can study an herb it's too complex and similarly i think with the kind of interventions we do one of the reasons why it's so difficult to make a study of the efficacy of acupuncture you know, within a Western medical context is that we are never comparing apples to apples when we do a study Mm -hmm. like that. Um, Mm -hmm. We're just looking at a subset of phenomenon that are, you know, we're talking about emergence and emergence is that phenomenon when something that wasn't represented in the constituent parts expresses, Mm -hmm. right? And so if you study the constituent parts, you're not really going to understand the emergent phenomenon. Because it doesn't actually, it's not there until it comes out of that set of complex interactions. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm not at the level where I necessarily can say, I've tried to treat these things with herbs and it's been ineffective and I've successfully treated them with acupuncture. So this is conjecture, but right. I feel like it's conjecture that's based in some pretty good reasoning. Um, yeah, no, you know, absolutely. I think it's a little conjecture. Totally. Absolutely. I mean, what what you're talking about there, Taryn, is, or the piece of it that strikes me that's therefore, I'm, you know, critical to our process, and thankfully, mostly does exist for for the for the taking and for the studying and for the learning, is all of our methods, and there are many, of verification, of of, mm. of checking. And this is, this is a critical piece to our medicine, I think. I'm talking about our methods. I'm not talking about quasi-scientific methods because mm-hmm. the notion, and this is part of what you're saying as well, the notion of, or the idea that we would be looking for a mechanism is in, in itself really a, a kind of a, it's a sort of red, red herring in my opinion because just exactly as you're describing, who knows what the mechanism is exactly. And probably once you get your finger on after studying a particular case for 10 years, maybe approaching some vague understanding uh, of that particular mechanism for that patient, it doesn't translate to the next patient. And, you know, you can either find that completely frustrating and then kind of invalidate it because it doesn't have any kind of legitimacy in in the world of, you know, repeatable events, um, which is the way that some people describe science, but that would be 
ridiculous, really, because we only need to step back more than 100 years, and then science was not described that way at all. You know, empirical experiments and observe, careful observation and movement forward, this is, this is science, really, and this is what we do. Um, and that de rigueur kind of accepts the fundamental basis that we don't know. It's like, a, it's like the hypothesis of research, in a sense. We start from the point we don't know. But you do, like you say, you have hopefully some experience, an underbed of experience of actually seeing patients. And then on top of that, you have certain amounts of understanding and knowledge. And you, you do your best at constructing uh, by what I would call, Arnaud uh, also uses this term, um, reverse engineering, in a sense. He talks about this kind of, you know, we're in the field we're with patients. We're basically, you know, hypothesizing all the time and checking, hopefully, all the time and either weeding out non-sequiturs or including evidence that seems valuable and trying to build up that evidence to a point that it allows us to make a decision. Um, but that's a process. It can't be, uh, it can't be a one. And of course, it's a process from treat to treatment to treatment. I mean, God, this, we all know how many times we've thought back and cringed at some of the things we may have done with a patient uh, because later on we feel, but even that later on is going to have another later on. And, you know, these are series of, so what's the point of cringing, really? The point is you can do your best of the time. I mean, I always feel like with, with myself and with students, I always feel like the key internal process is, um, is, should be hopefully governed by, number one, honesty, like honesty to yourself and, do, you know, really looking at things the way you see it. And that, but that, that implies and actually demands that you accept that it's totally subjective. There's no way around that. But subjective honesty is useful. And then you can sort of go on your way there. If you, if you start to transplant all sorts of, you know, received wisdom or other ideas that don't really kind of resonate with you or, you know, whatever it is you may have learned or whatever it is you may have read or the Western diagnosis that the patient has that you're trying to kind of, you know, this is not going to get you very far, I think. Um, but yes, what we do is pretty, pretty subjective. I would have to say that. I'd be the first to acknowledge that. Um, but the checking mechanisms are super important. I mean, that's what drew me to Japanese medicine in the first place, is that in general, in that culture, I'm not saying that in other systems or cultures there isn't, but in, uh, certainly in Japan, they're very keen on, on the, you know, oh, you, you, say, you say that's it? Okay, show me. That's it. Show me. Like now, what's, what's the checking, whether it's a martial art or a healing art, or you know, there has to be a kind of bottom line check. And mm. um, for me in Campo, the, the abdomen is kind of the main key for me in that regard, just because I find it so practical and, uh, and not so confusing. The pulse is so much more difficult, in my opinion, to be, um, uh, well, again, words like accurate, who knows, but, you know, to, to, to get to a sense of internal confidence with the pulse uh, takes, I think, probably a lifetime. Um, I think with the abdomen, you know, if you practice regularly and you see enough patients in five or 10 years, you can, you can be pretty competent and use, use it very efficiently. I'm not saying, you know, there's a hierarchy necessarily. And as we all know, all of these different sources of information are all very important. But um, I would say if there's a bottom line for me in that regard to checking uh, if I th I'm thinking this, okay, let me just check. <laughs> if I'm going to give a blood cracking formula and there's no blood stasis in the abdomen, that doesn't make sense to me, even though mm -hmm. it's as this, that, right? So, yes, the, the yeah. Anyway. Do you find that the, the hara is like 
that is the demarcation line. If it's not in the Hara, it's going to be, you really have to justify it. I mean, everything else has to be in line. Like, okay, well, then the tongue and the pulse and the symptoms have to match. Or do you just, is it just no? <laughs> the Hara is not there, forget it. I think it's that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I would not normally prescribe a formula if there's no evidence for it in the Hara at all, if that's what you're asking. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it, it, it doesn't mean that other things don't match. In fact, uh, you know, the tongue, to my mind, the tongue and the abdomen belong, of course, naturally to, if one used the terms yin and yang, they belong to the yin aspects of diagnosis because they're tactile and receptive um, or visually receptive. Uh, whereas, of course, um, the pulse is you know, re reflecting changes that are moment to moment uh, or very often, even within one treatment, of course, many times the pulse can change. That won't happen. You know, that red tongue is not going to be less red at the end of your session. Very unlikely. <laughs> uh, so in that respect, the tongue and abdomen um, often do, uh, will coincide quite closely in their, in their evidence, whereas the pulse may not at all. Um, that's, mm. that's, that's perfectly okay. So in that sort of sense of hierarchy, I'll go with the two, uh, especially with internal medicine conditions, with the two yin aspects of, you know, rather than the pulse. If I don't understand or I can't, you know, interpret the pulse, I'll just say, okay, let me put that aside. Um, mm -hmm. In China, thinking, especially in Taiyang, early stage, acute stage, no, you've, I mean, the pulse is going to tell you pretty much everything. Um, but yeah, in, in chronic internal disease, it's, uh, it's complicated, the pulse. There's so many layers, aren't there? Um, you know, why does that person who um, has a lot of apparently constraint in the hypochondrium, fairly robust, looks a little red-faced, has somewhat of a reddish dry tongue, thirsty easily, suffers from headaches and a slight or mild hypertension, you know, why do they have that uh, deep, somewhat slightly even weak or thin pulse, especially on the guan on the left side. Well, um, I don't know exactly, but I assume perhaps that all that constrained energy is is not able to get out to the to the radial pulse, right? Mm -hmm. Something like that. Mm -hmm. But but you know, to call it a deep weak pulse and then think of a deficient pattern would be, you know, probably a mistake in that case. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the pulse is is always reflective of what it's reflective of. But like Taran was saying, it, it, it just depends exactly how you understand that. I mean, it's because right, uh, when I hear you describe that person, I'm like, well, what's going on with their lower back? Because, mm -hmm. you know, if there is some mm -hmm. kind of right. restriction there, right, right, then you're like, oh, mm -hmm. so that pulse might say to me like, well, you know, yes. do you have back pain? Have you had a back injury? You know, like I would yes. start going down that rabbit mm -hmm. hole and then look at, mm -hmm. you know, addressing that through a manual intervention and then see, does the mm -hmm. pulse change at all when we right, right. open mm -hmm. that space up? No. Okay. Well then it's probably yeah. still worthwhile, but it doesn't actually get to that particular <laughs> yeah. question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's such a fun thing because I think we're starting to see the different colors, the different presentations of like practitioner, the, you know, like, so Taryn's a very uh, heavily into body work. He's mm -hmm. studied with Tom Bizio for a while. Right. And so he's very much into the manipulation. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. But it's funny. I, I, cause I don't know if you know this about Nigel Taryn, but his, his roots are in Shiatsu. I do know that. Oh, okay. <laughs> because I've listened to interviews, yeah. but that's the only oh, yeah. Right, right, right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, do you find, um, Nigel that like, 
you know, your brain is a bit more oriented to Kampo these days than Shiatsu. So in that, in an instance like that, would you, do you think you would? My body, uh, my 62 year old body. (laughs) Fair. I'm pretty active, but you know, a full on floor Shiatsu session, eight, five or six or seven times a day is, um, that's a lot, you know. Oh, for sure. But I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's... It, but then that was, that's why he was my teacher, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, like in this, in a sense of like, you know, when you're, when you're gathering all these uh, symptoms and things and gathering yeah. all this information, how, how often these days do you, do you, does your shiatsu hat come on? And you're like, oh, well that, maybe we just need to, you know, roll out their calves a bit and to get some all, all the know, time. penis return yeah. coming okay yeah no no all the time it's big i mean i i, I give shatsu to every one of my patients um, mm-hmm. on the table uh, i've I kind of these days i've adapted to the table uh some of the kata and i usually use about you know maybe 15 minutes of the set every session is is that more often at the end of a session but sometimes mm-hmm. in the beginning if, if i need to get things moving um mm-hmm. especially based on yeah, constraint patterns and stuff. But no, I, it's a big part of my, my doing, but it's also a big part of my thinking. I mean, there's no, there's no question. I mean, I, you know, I, I started life in comparative literature and sort of heady stuff, uh, which was pretty interesting. Um, and I was sort of headed to the ivory tower a little bit. Um, you probably know the story, but, uh, you know, I actually, I actually, weirdly, I looked at, when I was graduating from my master's program um, in England, I, uh, I just assumed, well, now I have to do a PhD, right? Because that's sort of what you do. Um, so I thought, well, I don't want to stay in England. That much I knew. I wanted to travel a bit. So I thought, well, I'll go to America and, um, or, ca- or Canada or something. Let me just look at the prospectuses and let me see what the campus looks like. I mean, that was like, like the level of my thinking. You know, not that I haven't traveled. I mean, even, even you know, as a young man, I, my dad was in the military, so we kind of traveled quite a bit, but not, not hugely internationally, but a lot in Europe. Anyway, so uh, consequently, UBC um, in Vancouver and Berkeley, California, were the two campuses that looked really interesting to me and exotic. And so mm-hmm. I applied, and uh, I got accepted at both, and I was going to go to Berkeley, actually. This is, 1980, this is like 1982. So I was supposed to go in the fall and start my PhD in comparative literature, which um, somehow or other never quite gelled with me. Anyway, the point being that I started life in that kind of mold, and um, I, know, I, knew, I came to know that I was you know, reasonably fair uh, reader and, and writer, and I, I was certainly interested in literature but, um, and thinking and philosophy. But I don't know. I just wanted to – I just felt like it's a bit one-sided, you know. I, <laughs> I, I want to do something. So, you know, my move to Japan and then my discovery of Shiatsu at the time initially was really a, a kind of deliberate, uh, maybe not totally fully conscious choice, but a kind of a feeling that I needed to ground my body in something different and do something from a different perspective. And I'm, I don't regret any of that because uh, I think I would have taken a very different path if I'd gone the other way. So yeah, those, those years in Japan, um, especially the early years uh, in acupuncture school, you have to do two years of shiatsu anyway. And that got me interested in shiatsu. And then I found my teacher outside of school and was with him the whole time and had regular treatments from him. So that influenced me from a, 
you know, I dabbled in martial arts at the time. It was interesting. You know, there were some interesting, amazing teachers. I, I look back and realize now, damn, you know, I really should have, <laughs> I really should have made more, more of, you know, you could wander down. We used to wander down to the Aikikai, right? And they were like, you know, Weshiba's grandson was still like teaching them. Yeah, it's like crazy. But I didn't know any of that shit. So I was just, you know, mm-hmm. I just we would, you know, prefer to go to the pub or something. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I did a bit of that. I did a bit of that. And another friend of mine was into Buto dance. Uh, and again, there were these very interesting, uh, which is also very physical. It's like incredible training. Oh, yeah. And so I did a little bit of that with this with this group called Dairakuda Khan, who who became quite well known later Whoa. on. In that time, we were like, you know, they were just they were just starting. They were in this place in it's Kichichoji in Western Tokyo. Where there was like this little dive, you know, like spit and sawdust dive, and we'd go and we'd do, you know, these guys. I think they liked having gaijin around. You know, it was kind of exotic to have these foreigners. Like, and my friend was quite a serious dancer, so he was into it. But I, I was I used to hang around, and we'd do these you know, standing poses for like hours. And it was like excruciating. And I thought, what the fuck is this all about? <laughs> but then I would watch them and it was, it was very interesting stuff. Anyway, so yeah, I got more physical that way. And uh, it is a big part of my thinking and practice, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, in some ways, I, I kind of um, lament the transition to the table um, and the loss of you you're working on the floor, just which just became practically very difficult. You know, I used to in the day, I used to literally between patients like put the table up, take the table down. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I used to do that um, depending on who was coming, but it just became a little bit unwieldy. Um, and uh, uh, so, yes, things have moved on a little bit <clears throat> in the last number of years. But um, I, yes, if a, you know. Uh, I don't know if a patient's lying in a particular posture uh, and I'm feeling oh, that pulse, that's weird. Kind of like, why is the left side, the chi, like the chi is strong and the right is all, oh, well, let me just move that shoulder. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, those, those kinds of things um, are, are very, very uh, familiar to me. So I, and I tend to make that if there is a priority or a, or a hierarchy, that's kind of like number one. The, the physicality is sort of, you know, make sure that you're not dealing with something really concrete and physical and obvious here because um, don't get too fancy in all this internal medicine thinking. You know, this could be very straightforward, which is usually ends up not being straightforward, but at least it's like something more concrete or physical. So, yes, I, I tend to, if someone comes in with back pain, I'm going to ask those obvious questions first and investigate history of trauma or other practical things to make sure we're not already you know, going down some complicated internal medicine thinking, which may 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 turn out to not be very useful. So I don't know if that that responds to what you're saying, but yeah, I, it it speaks to this habit that I'm trying to break, which is a patient comes in, say let's say they're a new patient, and they're like, I have a pain in my shoulder, it's right here, and you know, it hurts when I do this or that. Um, you know, it's pretty new. No injury per se, but whatever, whatever. Ooh. And and um, you know, my TCM brain is just like, okay, let's ask all these possible questions. Is it blood stasis? Is it possibly like B syndrome? Is it like, you know whatever? What's your diet like? Are you pooping? Where where what are you at in your cycle? It's like, Ugh. just put them on the table and then mm-hmm. look at it and just feel it, you know? Because mm-hmm. so many times now, because part of my brain is like, okay, they're here for an hour and a half. I don't want to waste their time. 
you know, I don't, you know, they're paying for the hour and a half. <laughs> like, I want to fill it with all this, you know, Chinese medicine, right? And so we have to have a conversation. I have to explain things, whatever, whatever. When in fact, it, I could spend a half an hour actually massaging them, hmm. you know, getting into that tissue and then relieving the, the issue, or, you know, taking the time to just put hands on and be with them. And then gathering all that information that way and then being able to address them appropriately because I've noticed a couple of times, you know, you you talk about cringing and the treatments that you've given. Like looking back, I've definitely um, over-treated deficiency. Mm -hmm. So like someone with clear like um, probably paraspinal low back weakness but and they're in an acute uh, phase of pain and it's pretty bad so i'm like oh it's really bad i gotta get in there i gotta do something and i make a difference and i overtreat them and then they're worse and then they get better probably about the third or fourth day they actually maybe feel a little bit better and then maybe they're on a better trajectory overall because structurally they're in a better place but like those first two days after treatment they're not great and so if i had just laid hands on and realized this tissue is lax. It's it's soft. It's it's weak. It's not it's not it doesn't have any breath. It's not vibrant. It has no tonus. Like mm-hmm. I'm not you shouldn't throw needles in that. You should do moxie, you should do massage, you should, mm-hmm. you know, do distal points, you should give him some soup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. I actually was telling a patient the other day, because I thought of it while I was I was doing a home visit because this is how bad it was. But um I was thinking about this because I was listening to some my, um, what was it? The Grunge Station on Spotify, and that's oh. my era. You know, I grew up in the eighties, nineties, right? I know you and your music. I know. <laughs> right. I know. Well, we do have something in common. That's right. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't a Bowie song that got that got me thinking about this, but it could have easily been. But it's this this song came on I hadn't heard in forever, mm-hmm. and it sent that that shiver up my spine. Do you know, uh, like that? Oh yeah. yeah. And it got me thinking, like this guy needs to listen to something like that, you know, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. gets your young moving, you know, yeah. whatever ignites it, listen mm-hmm. to that. Don't move. <laughs> Just <laughs> listen to that thing. Maybe watch something that's like enervating, mm. but like do that and try and focus on your low back and see if that doesn't, you know, push a little bit of chi through there. Mm. But yeah. anyway, I like the listening idea, but the, like the ear knee <laughs> connection, I right? wonder about the watching idea. Yeah, in that particular instance, but oh, that's, that's like okay. a level of geekiness that we probably don't need to. Get into. <laughs> I, I I'm curious though, Lucas. Do you you think that if somebody has soreness or discomfort for 24 to 48 hours following a treatment, that that is an indication of overtreatment? Is that a is that what I'm hearing, or am I misinterpreting what you're saying? I think in these cases it was an increase of pain. So they came in and they were like, oh, I can't. This is, this is, uh, maybe I'm at an eight. Mm. And then they were at a, like, a, well, maybe they were at an eight again or a nine or 10. But, ah, okay. Do you know what I mean? So what, what, what's Because it your, destabilized, I think. And what's your definition in the, those cases of overtreatment? What do you mean? Do you mean like the placement of too many needles, the too much, too long I think so. time? Or, or, maybe, or uh, well, certainly, uh, I can definitely think of a, an, a retention time that was too much 
that was mm-hmm. pretty big. It can be just a handful of needles, but if it's, mm-hmm. you know, even if it's like 30, 35 minutes, they needed to be one of those like 20 minutes, maybe mm-hmm. fe- maybe even 15, maybe a shortened treatment mm. just to move things, you know, excite the tissue. But I, my, my inclination is that, um, you know, the tissue's in a certain holding pattern and it just moved way too much. So now everything's a bit mm. too lax mm. and the, when it actually needs support and structure. Would that in, would that kind of speak to you of, of more um, excess patterns and stronger individuals? Because that's what I'm. That's, that's kind of what yeah. I'm hearing. That's an interesting because I, now that I think about it, the two the two cases I'm thinking of specifically, they were pretty robust mm. men actually. Well, I'm saying it because I've had some experiences, but typically with strong constitutional types, who if I retain the needles too long. Um, one interpretation I might have is that if I've done a what's you know a reasonable treatment that time, you know I've got th- especially in the so-called root treatment in the in the in the caricature in the meridian therapy style that I use that that first round of simple needling, which is just really designed to kind of bring the pulse into balance mostly. Um, if that's worked quite well and if things are balancing, it seems like the stronger types they get to that point quicker. Mm. Uh, in my experience. And and if you leave them, there's something about the potential for counterflow or some kind of agitation. Because the, the most commonly reported experience of those types of individuals um, is uh, agitate. They feel a bit antsy. They feel a bit a- agitated. Yeah. So I've always, because, mm-hmm. you know, my retention time for the root treatment is usually between around, I don't know, 12 and 15 minutes, something like that. But, and I, and, you know, just for the reasons of, uh, you know, practice and how I manage my practice. I usually, it's fairly standard, but if I can get a good sense of a person, I will obviously tailor make that and I'll shorten it for those stronger uh. types and I'll make it a little longer for the truly deficient types. But that's what I found. But I, I just curious about whether you've noticed that. Um, I had, I hadn't played around with it with the root treatment. Cause I was, I was always like oh, 14 yeah. minutes. <laughs> yeah. I think you'll, well, I think you might notice some differences. That's interesting. Yeah. I've definitely noticed those strong types, they get antsy quickly. So 10 to 10, 10 minutes enough, usually with that, um, for, for, for that kind of harmonizing issue. And then after yeah. that, something other else seems to happen. Yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah. yeah. Even when you, so if you have, <clears throat> have someone that gets that agitated state, do you, would you do a uh, branch treatment then? Uh, I'll do a branch treatment, but usually I do a bit of shiatsu then. Uh, when I come uh, back, okay. I'll do some body work and then then maybe do some second round of needling. But um, thankfully, it doesn't happen so much anymore. I kind of learned on that one. <laughs> but uh, that's how I've associated with with that. And um, you know, it is. We remember our, our famous uh, Kohoha uh, son uh, by the mm-hmm. name of Goto Gonzan, right, from the mm-hmm. early 1600s. So his big pet theory about Chi stagnation is that source of all disease. You know, very, it's a it's a very simple idea, but it's actually you know it goes a long way. There's a lot of mileage in that, um, even in deficient patients. You know, because obviously they have pockets of stasis, and uh, mm-hmm. the, the question would be, you know, if you could release and move some of that, I mean, how are they going to how how much better might they feel without your tonifying herbs? Because you you brought that up earlier, and um, as you know, in Camper, we're very reluctant actually. 
uh, to give to purely tonic formulas. It's, it's a very rare thing. Um, you're usually talking about truly uh, chronic and pretty degenerative diseases where you know, certain processes are, are, are failing in the body. Like something like Sajunzatang, which I noticed in TCM school was given out you know, to every other person. And, you know, hardly ever use that in Campo unless the patient has got stomach cancer and is dying, you know, literally. The use of mm -hmm. quality Renshan is, is to literally, like it says in the Shangalone, you know, recapture the yang. It's like mm -hmm. really a, a life-saving potential of, um, mm -hmm. of a formula like that. So, yeah, there's lots of pretty different ideas in our medicine, aren't there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, I'm finding... Then, Go ahead. No, something else you said also struck me, and you know, when I... When I went from Japan, when we all went to China, one of the first things that really struck me, apart from being laughed at, of course, by all of our Chinese in, in, you know, uh, interpreters and doctors, when they saw our needle technique, they were like, oh, yeah. it's like, <laughs> can't get, you can't get the dirty with that. <laughs> you know, oh, it's like a fly walking on my, you know. But anyway, so we actually, because <laughs> we, we were kind of like our little graduating class, you know, as you are when you're young, like that, you're kind of proud of our little heritage there. So we all, we all were very anxious to demonstrate our Japanese. And, and, and a lot of Chinese were interested too. They wanted to see. But after about the first week of the six months we were there, um, we kind of stopped. We didn't do any more acupuncture. We, like too embarrassed, but one of the first things that really struck me about the study of acupuncture uh, theory and channel theory, particularly, was the you know the the particular style of you know teaching point functions, um, which I had never come across before in Japan. Not not once we didn't have any of that, and initially I found it you know very interesting. Um, and I was very curious about, like, why, why, how did, where did that come from, you know? And, and, you know, it's many, many, many years later, I feel like I've been able to develop a little bit of a better historical understanding of how that thinking actually came into being, um, which clearly is not classical, which is not a negative thing, but it's, it's, a rel it's a, you know, around 11th, 12th century style time in China. Um, but it was very, it was an anathema to me to think about points that way, um, that, you know, you could actually describe a, func a dedicated function of a point that would actually do this thing. You know, I never really thought about acupuncture that way. and Because uh, in Japan, we certainly approached acupuncture in the same way we approached Kampo, actually, which is to say the show or the pattern was a, was a whole thing. So you had to conceive of the entirety of all of the needles you were going to use in one treatment before you did anything. Because the mm. whole point was the interrelationship between these these points that you did choose, and the the logic that underpinned the choice of points was always channel based and not based on some kind of individual function idea um, so it was very different it was, it was very different um, and, and very interesting to me, but I must say that it, it didn't really take hold of me that that, that style of of practice of of, of, of acupuncture never really. Quite, although you know the clinical work I saw in China was incredibly uh, interesting and, and, mm -hmm. and very persuasive, and you know we saw a lot of very you know, amazing treatments. But um, when I really came to think about it later on, um, the most successful clinics that we were in weren't actually really following the TCM stars. <laughs> they, they they were run by doctors who were a little maverick and, and usually very mm. experienced and had not trained themselves in the TCM system because they had pre because we're talking about the eighties now, so they would have trained in the fifties or before mm. before the Cultural Revolution. So 
that was kind of interesting. Um, that is very interesting. You know, I mean, even one guy, Gali Shan, I remember him very well, who used to, he was always like totally unshaven, he's a character, but you know, that little white cap on him, and, and he was fundamentally herbalist, but also obviously a very dedicated acupuncturist. He was into, you know, the Wuliuju, the, the kind of um, the time clock and the stems and branches. I mean, that was his thing. And he wasn't allowed to teach that. I mean, we, we had the, the party official sitting in the corner. So from in the morning time, we had to like, he had to teach all this, teach him. And then about lunch, you know, 12.01, the, uh, the party official would go, they were off to lunch, right? Literally, boom. So they were like, okay, look around, like open the drawer, bring out the stuff. And like, for two hours, we'd be, we'd be able to do something that was really interesting. Um, so there were people there doing all kinds of interesting traditional stuff. It was, and I'm sure that continues to this day, but it's, um, it's interesting that the, the hegemony of the, the TCM system, which has some beautiful things about it, and it's a very noble attempt, certainly, to integrate things and all that. But I don't know. It's just, it never, yeah. I mean, how are you going to... How are you going to check that spleen nine drains damp from the lower jaw? How, how are you going to check that? That's exactly. like, wow. I mean, okay. <laughs> All right. Nice yeah. idea. <laughs> exactly. Well, but to your point from earlier in terms of, you know, we acknowledge that this is subjective, but we still yeah. have ways that yes. we yes. are going to be in our own with our own set of criteria and metrics empirically seeking to determine whether or not effective change or change at all mm. has been made or is arising, depending mm. on how you want to orient to it. I mean, if you have a way of assessing that there's damage in yes. the lower jaw yes. to begin yes. with, then you can see, am I, I see, I am I, for me, if I use yeah. this point, is that happening? You yeah. know, I, I think, there's the um, we're doing this because it says it in, in a book version of the protocols, right? There's mm -hmm. the what you're talking about, you know, if I'm understanding you correctly, in terms of the relationship to the whole pattern and seeing all the needles and working, knowing that I'm relating to a pattern. So I'm going to put in all of these things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's potential efficacy because we do see TCM sometimes being incredibly effective, right? And like I'm following. Mm -hmm the instructions. Then there's the like, I'm seeing kind of on a holistic level, but it sounds like there's still a, these things all have to map in my understanding before I intervene. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there's this other sort of branch of like, well, I'm seeing pattern and flow or lack thereof. And now I'm intervening and then I'm watching what changes. Mm. And then that's dictating how I'm going to relate because back to the earlier part of the conversation where you were pointing out that there's something inherently Taoist about, you know, like everything's changing. Like Japan could, could flow with the changes that were arising culturally in such a way that they really did adapt and something new could express. Mm. And so this kind of other orientation that I want to throw into the mix is, is more like that where it's like, well, I'm going to send in this like this bit of information in the system and then we're going to see what shifts mm -hmm. and how it shifts and then we'll address the next step as the next step arises. Mm -hmm. um, because I see that that is a, I mean, that's in some respects more similar to a lot of what I do in practice, though I do work with Sa'am a lot, which is very much a like see the pattern, do the thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but there's also a big part of my own inquiry. And I think that um, certainly this is something that's resonant with how Ed expresses his methodology where it's always dependent on like what happens next, right? Because like mm -hmm. we make an intervention yep. and if it is, I mean, if nothing happens, it's probably not really an intervention. I'm just doing something, but I'm not actually mm -hmm. engaging and communicating. But if I am engaging and communicating, there should be some change, right? Mm -hmm. How that goes then is going to dictate yes. how we continue right. to relate to yeah, the next yeah, steps, yeah. right? Yeah, response to treatment certainly is a big piece of campo as well. I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's mm. a big piece of the diagnosis. I mean, you can't really talk about a diagnosis without a process of responding to treatment. Mm -hmm. And the good, the good news is, at least in campo anyway, and, and that's one thing that does mark out herbal medicine, in my mind, as uh, somewhat more user-friendly. User because I know there's, and this is a sort of received wisdom and maybe not true at all, but I've always felt in our education system here, and also in Europe, I, I saw it too, that many people were both led to believe and also taught and also believe themselves at some point that somehow herbs are kind of the top of the hierarchy in some sort of weird kind of way. I've never really felt that way at all. In fact, I feel like um, although there is a lot of material uh, of study and, and there is a lot of knowledge base, which is, you know, has the danger sometimes of being very abstract and, um, and rather intellectual, but there is a lot of knowledge, but, that ha that's it, the more in a sense the more material uh the nature of study the more it's vanquishable <laughs> mm -hmm. I, think you, I think you can you know with the right amount of time and, and, and energy investment i strongly feel you can come to a quasi mastery of herbal medicine much more easily and readily than acupuncture or, or body work for that matter, which to me has always been more open-ended and more in interactive. I mean, because essentially with the campus system, there's not a whole lot of interaction. What's happening there is you, your desperate attempts in understanding the patient are, are really, if they're meticulous, you're trying to look at all the different aspects that eventually are going to reveal themselves to you, hopefully, as a picture that you recognize. Mm -hmm. Because that's a formula that already exists. Mm -hmm. And all your job then is to do is to match them. Right. You're not making an abstract diagnosis. You're not making an intellectual description of what you think the pathomechanism is. None of that is relevant. It's just, have you been thorough enough in your analysis of that patient presenting signs and symptoms? And have you done due diligence to the point where you've gathered all the evidence? And now that evidence hopefully is sounding a very strong alarm and pointing to a particular formula. If you're lucky, more likely maybe a family formula is you'll have to do a little bit of fine tuning, but that's, as you know, the Campo system, which is interesting, um, but it's, it's manageable. I mean, without any great disrespect to the physicians in Japan, those of whom, who are good practitioners of Campo, and there, there are a good number of them. Um, I think that's why they're able to do it. Mm. Because, because, mm. because they've got good clinical skills and they are, they are good clinicians, but they don't really have a very deep understanding of Chinese medicine. They do not. But they have good clinical skills. And if they pay attention to the right things, they can do a pretty damn good job. Um, of course, the risk is always running into those kind of cookbook-type recipe things, which is a big danger. But the good ones don't do that. They, they pay attention. They use the abdomen. They use the pulse. They use the traditional description of formulas, not just some quasi-modern uh, analysis. And, um, 
you can get so anyway my my point there is just to to acknowledge i guess to my mind the um yes the inescapable complexity of energetic what i would call energetic medicine like acupuncture and manipulation of energy is is vastly subtle and uh and not so materially domitable and or, or absorbable uh, as i think herbs are so i kind of think it's the other way around actually mm. <laughs> you know you can get to a point of comfort with herbs much more quickly than you can with uh, i still feel very often kind of completely nonplussed in my acupuncture practice you know? <laughs> i'm like i sort of know what to do or i sort of know what i'm gonna do but god knows if it's gonna be any use or not and it's um which is of course part of the attraction it's um it's mm-hmm. so interestingly open-ended um because herbs you know if you're paying attention if you go wrong you know that pretty quickly. <laughs> if you're not paying attention, you're in trouble because the patient's going to suffer. But if you're paying attention and you're doing the right thing, you're going to know very quickly if you're on the wrong path. Mm. And again, if you're paying attention to what that means, what that mistake has taught you, then you'll know what to do next. But acupuncture is not nearly as clear as that. It's highly, you know, as we know, from moment to moment, it's um, so much so much possibility of interactions are and interpretations are going on constantly. Mm. <laughs> it's almost like a an echo with a you know like a, son, a sonographic echo that's bouncing back and forth all the time. Whereas I think in herbal thinking, at a certain point, hopefully the alarm the bell goes off and you kind of up oh, there I am. Now you hopefully you don't think you're right, but you did reach a decision that was clear and rationalized, and you give that formula, and then you watch. Right. So I think. Ultimately, that's a more, it's an easier process. <laughs> um, well, I mean, Taryn, you, you talked to me a little bit about how your experience with Sa'am and how it's pretty reactive <laughs> and it'll let you know. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, yeah. so first off, Nigel, we want to be respectful of your time. Lucas had said wow, you had yes, a patient right. at 11, it's 1035, so. Okay, yeah, I, I probably do need to get Yeah, so and... maybe instead okay. of diving into the, mm-hmm. Some yeah, rabbit hole, which is a totally fun conversation that I'm I happy would, to have with you. I totally want to have that one. Yeah, yes. we can do that. Yeah. Um, and and if yeah. if your game lets, uh, but are there? You know, we probably want to wrap this up. So, are there yeah. any yeah. thoughts either of y'all have that we want to bring into in the conversation before we close? Well, I do want to make sure we plug anything you're doing because I want. Oh. I'll, I'll probably edit this pretty quickly. And get yeah. it out sooner than later, so that if you if you have something that's going to happen soon, no, well, I mean our our um, audience is minimal. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> it'll be what it'll be. I mean, I would just say, yeah. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I mean, I if it's of interest, um, most of what I'm doing at the moment is is to do with campus, so it's herbal stuff. Um, much as I dream at some point, maybe because my group up in the my, up in Montreal are mostly shiatsu practitioners, actually. So I'm mm. hoping maybe, uh, that I might get an invitation to go and teach some shiatsu again. Oh, that that would be but right now, um, yeah, so uh, I have, uh, for good and for bad, I've sort of taken the executive decision that I will not feel bad about um, not becoming a rep for these pharmaceutical companies that sell herbs in this country, but I'm willing to be part of their educational programs i think i personally think that they're important and there's some very good speakers around i know craig mitchell has done some stuff and various other people um so i think it's a good way it's you know in western medical circles that is also very much a common theme and usually the practitioners and myself included 
uh, go to great lengths to um, not dissociate themselves from the company, but just say that, you know, we are not, we, we don't want any conflicts of interest. So I often mention that I use other companies or whatever. So I'm doing some things with Sun10 um, on their uh, continuing education. So if you went to sun10.com or, or I think Sun10 Laboratories, you can certainly see I've I just had a, a recent one on lung uh, or respiratory disorders the other day. I have a GI disorders one coming up. Um, there's one in Australia that's being done. Um, and I also work with, uh, um, as a kind of illustration of the fact that I'm not partisan, I also work with TCM Zone, um, Dan Wen, who's, uh, I'm going to be doing, a, a, actually, I think that might be quite interesting. Uh, I'm certainly finding it interesting researching this. Uh, it's going to be about um, the classic, uh, both classical Chinese herbal uh, concept or practice and the camper, therefore the camper practice of of matching the whole shore, whole shore, shore ichi, what they call it, which is like feng jiang, like matching pattern. And uh, so this, I, Taryn, you had a good way of describing that. What, how was that? This kind of whole, yes, matching anyway, lock and key, the lock and key system, almost like uh, classical homeopathic kind of lock and key. Mm. Uh, yeah. So that's going to be coming up next month. These are all next month, actually, okay. uh, or July. Um, but uh, there's a couple of things I'm doing, yes working away on my uh, rather grandiosely entitled trilogy. So the, the, abdomen, the abdomen book was the first. I'm doing a formula book and I'm doing a case study book. So Excellent. Be, which is, um, I'm very, as I say, grandiosely um, trying to follow in the footsteps of Toru Yoshimazu, one of the great Edo period doctors, because exactly, he did exactly that. He wrote three books uh, and they were basically, you know, on those, on those themes, abdomen, cases and formulas, which is sort of what Campo's kind of about, really. Um, yeah, so there's a few things. Otherwise, I'm just trying to keep, keep up with my 11-year-old, who's a big soccer <laughs> dad. I'm a total soccer dad. I have five nights a week. You know, it's like oh it's heavy, heavy duty. <laughs> so if cool. I ever get this book finished, we'll see. <laughs> we'll, we'll put the uh, – you give us a link to where – what's the best place to buy the book? The first, oh, okay. uh, the first book well, in that I mean, preferable say, place. And, and as much as I hate to say this, probably Amazon. But you yeah, know, yeah. If, you, if you don't want to do Amazon, I can send you a link to the, the publisher. Stuff, Let's do that. I think can, that's better. Can, I yeah. think our audience is probably yeah. more likely the, the kind that would actually, you know. Yeah, that's right. Singing, Singing Dragon is the publisher. So singing, singingdragon.com, you can, you can go to them. That would Great. be the best. Great. Yeah, that way you, you can uh, avoid paying Mr. Bezos. And, um, it, quite honestly, it's not that much more. I, I think no, I, I think did that, it, and it was like it's fine. It's yes, it's probably slower, you know. But um, right. and, and unfortunately, that is the, the payoff yeah. of being ethically correct. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like we got to do this again if you if you ever have the time. I know you're very busy, sure. so I make time. I make There's time. It was a lot of fun. It's great to talk to you guys. Yeah, uh, Tyler, thank you. Very so nice much. to meet you. Nice yeah. to meet you, Nigel. It's been a total pleasure. All right. Okay, guys. We'll keep you. Thanks, Thanks, Nigel. Have a great day, Nigel. All right. You too. Take care. Bye.